Welcome to Timothy Eden Memorial Church, a place for life. Connect, participate, celebrate. Let us pray. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen. I was driving with my brother through South Texas one time, and we stopped for gas, and I took a step out of the car, and all you could hear was crunch, 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 crickets everywhere. We went to eat, and the crickets were jumping around in the light fixtures right above where the food was. We checked into a hotel, pulled the sheet back, and there were crickets in the made bed. Now, apparently, this happens in South Texas sometimes. If there's been a long drought and there's a big rain, all of those things will hatch at once. But for us, it felt like we were walking around in a Bible story. The plagues. We're preaching through the book of Exodus here at TMC through Easter, and six chapters of the 40 in Exodus are about the plagues. I've never preached on the plagues. I've got dozens of books of sermons on my shelf. I checked. Not one of them is about the plagues. It seems like we Christian preachers avoid the plagues like the plague. You knew it was coming. Hollywood loves the plagues. So every movie about the Exodus has a long section about the plagues. The Charlton Heston one of old, the Disney one the newer one with Christian Bale, even Hollywood movies that aren't about the Exodus sometimes have one of the ten plagues in it. So the crescendo scene of Magnolia has a shower of frogs. No explanation. If you haven't been in Sunday school, you're out of luck in terms of understanding it. I heard British Columbia's premier joke after his first year in office that he'd faced fire and flood. Now he was waiting for locusts and hail he had no idea COVID was coming. This congregation has faced wave after wave of difficulty lately. All churches, all people had to adjust to the pandemic and what it did to us. When we came back, not everyone came back. Some were more disabled. Some had died. And sometimes we didn't even know it. Some had funerals with only 10 people allowed where the building would have been full ordinarily. For this congregation, your beloved senior pastor of a quarter century retired. I was talking to a friend at my old church about an associate pastor who'd quit after eight years, and she was mourning that. Andrew was here three times that. It's a deep loss. It takes time to grieve. I remember another church I served in my first year. People were coming to me and saying, you're changing too much too fast. And I didn't understand because I had intentionally changed nothing. And then I realized, oh, yeah, I am change. <laughs> like it or not, things are different. Is anyone else ready for precedented times for a change? The plagues have a purpose in the Exodus story. Pharaoh has enslaved God's people. Moses and Aaron demand he let the people go. He will not. So each of the plagues is a warning and a sign of God's power against human stubbornness. 
Now, the plagues start out more annoying, less deadly. Flies and gnats and frogs. Then things get more serious. Death of the livestock, boils on the skin, the end of everything you've grown. And they conclude more deadly still with the death of Egypt's firstborn. Now, we call them plagues in Egypt, but in Hebrew, they're called signs and wonders. Signs and wonders. Evidence that this is God's creation. Demonstration that God's in control. And in fact, what they are is decreation, creation undone. In Genesis, God pushes back the chaos and makes room for sun and moon, day and night, creepy crawly things and flying things, and you and me. What happens in the plagues is that God stops pushing back against chaos, and chaos reigns. So at creation, God first said, let there be light. In the ninth plague, God says, let there be dark. And it's a warning to Pharaoh and to every tyrant. If you oppress people, creation itself will collapse on your head. Now, I know the plagues are harsh, scary even. I think that's why most of us don't preach about them. But that might be because we've not experienced oppression or slavery. If you have been oppressed or enslaved, the plagues look like good news because God is fighting for you and you have no other weapons to fight for yourself. I was in South Sudan once. They were getting ready for a referendum on whether to leave the rest of Sudan and become their own country. That place had been terrorized for years, millions of dead by a despotic regime in Khartoum. And so the campaign slogan for the referendum made perfect sense. Let my people go. No one had to tell the South Sudanese that Exodus was good news. They had experienced harshness and wanted freedom. In Exodus, justice is about limiting harm. An eye for an eye is infamous. But what that means is if you take my eye, I can't go and kill your whole family, burn your village down. All I can do is take an eye. Then equilibrium is reestablished. Justice is what it's after. Pharaoh has tried to eliminate Israel, and so the elimination of Egypt would be just. An eye for an eye. That would be equilibrium. Instead of genocide, Egypt loses its firstborn. So it's ghastly, but Egypt survives as a people. And it's a warning. If you try to eliminate your enemy, you'll end up losing your own child. In Steven Spielberg's movie, Munich, Israeli government hitmen take revenge against terrorists who killed athletes in the 1972 Olympics. And after they kill one of them, they're celebrating, and then they feel bad for celebrating. And they start debating the morality of being hitmen. It's perfect. I hope real hitmen do this. Anyone know? No one? Okay. Good people. And one of them brings up a story from the rabbis about the Exodus, how after the Exodus, the Egyptians are lying dead on the seashore, and the angels here crying. And they ask God why he's crying. And he says, I'm crying for my Egyptian children. One of the other hitmen says, that's not what the Exodus is about. And he crushes out his cigarette. And the other guy says, well, okay, what's the Exodus about, Mr. Scholar? And he says, the Exodus says, don't mess with the Jews. <laughs> They're both true. 
And Jewish and Christian communities have debated the morality of these stories ever since they were first told around the fire. Is it right for God to punish Pharaoh when God hardens Pharaoh's heart? No answer to that. Don't try and answer it. Is it right for God to punish every single Egyptian when it's really just Pharaoh who's misbehaving? Most of them had nothing to do with it. White Southerners in the U.S., like me, often say, well, we gained nothing by slavery and Jim Crow, but I notice that my African-American friends tend to disagree about that. The U.S., lots of it was built on slave labor that their descendants taste no fruit from. Here's what this story says. God notices and acts for justice. Now, whether that's good news or not kind of depends on where you sit, right? In the black church in the U.S., there's a verse that's so important. When the preacher starts saying it or someone at the microphone starts saying it, the whole church will join in. It's this, as you sow, so shall you reap. Now, I've never noticed white churches in North America loving this verse, but the black church loves it. As you sow, so shall you reap. Agricultural metaphor, obviously. If you sow wheat, you're not going to bring up eggplants. But in a moral vein, it makes sense. Egypt has sown slavery and oppression. She will reap death. It's just the natural of order thing, order of things. If you put blood in the ground, your own blood will join it. Say it with me. As you sow, so shall you reap. I've gone a long time without addressing this particular plague Blood everywhere, not just in the Nile, but in the pitchers that had been gathered from the Nile before the plague, in water cups, in the little cup by the bathroom sink, nothing but blood. This one is instructive. Some of the plagues just seem random, hailstones and frogs. This one says slavery is a bloody business. Abraham Lincoln wondered whether all the violence in the U.S. Civil War was just recompense for all the blood that had been shed by the lash. As you sow, so shall you reap. There's a wonderful band from my native North Carolina, the Avid Brothers, and they sing about the South that they and I love. Blood on the table with the coffee and the sugar. Blood in the soil with the cotton and the tobacco. As you sow, so shall you reap. The blood also points forward to the Passover, a deliverance through blood. The Israelites will paint their doorposts with blood, and their firstborn will live. The Egyptians, no blood, and their firstborn will die. Now, there's a sort of realism in the blood. You guys know the coast. Sometimes the water has what we call down south a blood tide. It looks like blood. It's not really. Here it really is. If the water's really blood, the frogs will all jump out of it, right? Then the frogs will all die. Then the flies will come. The place will stink. It all makes a sort of sense. It doesn't work later in the plagues. What's happening here is nature is running amok. Creation is spilling over its limits. This is hypernatural, not supernatural. Now, you and I are still dependent on nature. We just live like we're not. Every natural disaster reminds us we human beings are dependent. The Nile is Egypt's lifeblood instructive phrase in English. For thousands of years, people who lived in Egypt depended on the Nile flooding and making the land fertile. Now the Nile is not a sign of life, but of death everywhere. 
But here's a fun twist. Pharaoh has his own magicians, and they can do magic tricks too. And so they also turn water into blood. But wait a minute. I thought all the water was already blood. So did they take the only drinkable water left in Egypt and make it blood too? Or did all the water turn back into water and they just made it blood again? Either way, this magic trick is another disaster. All Pharaoh's magicians can do is make things worse. In the plague of the frogs, they make even more frogs. When Pharaoh wants a plague lifted, he has to ask Moses to pray for him. And then the plague goes away. Only the God of Israel can lift a plague. After the second plague, Pharaoh's magicians tap out. They can't compete anymore. Now, the story starts out like the story of Moses' miraculous birth, if you remember from two weeks ago, when Pharaoh's daughter came down to the river and saw baby Moses in the basket. Here, Pharaoh has come down to the river. Will he see a spark of humanity in the Israelite slaves the way his blessed daughter did? Now, you got to remember, too, Moses was raised by Pharaoh's daughter. He's Pharaoh's adopted grandson. Will Pharaoh say yes to his grandson's request? The answer is no. He'll harden his heart. And here you thought you had dysfunction in your family, right? Ron Heifetz is a writer on leadership who used to be a heart surgeon. He talks about a grim statistic. For open heart surgery patients, every one of them gets read the riot act. You got to eat right, you got to exercise right, you got to live right, or you'll be right back on this table. Six out of seven change nothing. Go right back to their same diet, same lack of exercise. Heifetz says this just proves one person out of seven is lying. Nobody changes anything, ever. A cynical view, I realize. Is Pharaoh so different from us? I mean, Moses and Aaron say to him, hey, we need you to let your free labor force go to worship a God you don't recognize or respect. Of course, Pharaoh says, uh, no, are we done here? <laughs> Further, you and I are often spoken of as Scripture as having hearts of stone. What it means to become one of God's people is that God takes out our heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. Maybe we're more like Pharaoh than we realize. The plagues go on. Pestilence and hail and locusts. There's some comic elements here. The hail kills all the livestock after the pestilence killed all the livestock. One of you pointed out in Bible Study Tuesday, hey, where did all the cows come from? They just died two plagues ago. The, the hail, once again, destroys all the greenery after the locusts destroyed all the greenery. Okay, where did all the greenery come from? It reminds me of someone who thought they found a loophole. You know how the Bible talks about wailing and gnashing of teeth. Well, this particular gentleman said, wait a minute, I got no more teeth. How am I going to gnash something in hell that I don't have? And the answer was, teeth will be provided. <laughs> Here's what's going on here. You and I all depend on creation to live. In fact, we are creation. And creation is undone in response to injustice. Oppress your neighbor and creation itself will fight against you. We don't make the rules here. We just tell the stories. And of course, they take on a kind of legendary character. The stories themselves are winking at us. 
They're saying they're bigger than realistic stories, surrealistic stories if you're into Latin American literature. The point is God's grandeur, God's heart for the oppressed. And if necessary, extra greenery, extra livestock, and extra teeth will be provided. Now, the plagues have a kind of monotony to them, too. Try reading all six chapters and not falling asleep. I dare you. We sang the 12 days of Christmas at Christmas time, but we abbreviated them. So I asked Elaine, why don't we sing all 12? Tis the season and all that. And she looked at me with more patience than I deserved. And she said, because they're boring. Have you ever tried to sing all 12 in a row? Good luck with that. Everyone will leave and not come back. The repetition is the point here. Time after time, after time after time, after time after time, after time after time, after time after time, God gives Pharaoh a chance to repent, change course. Pharaoh gets way more chances than he deserves. And time after time, Pharaoh hardens his heart. Why? What's the point of all this? Exodus tells us several times, so that everyone may know that the God of Israel is the Lord of all. That's the point. So Israel may know, so Egypt may know, so you may know, so I may know, so our least religious neighbor may know, so our most religious neighbor may know. God has a chosen people, absolutely, this blessed family of slaves that he's delivering. God loves the underdog, but God reigns everywhere, over every gnat, every blade of grass, every falling piece of hail, over every plague, and every prayer of deliverance from every plague. Scripture goes out of its way elsewhere to praise Egypt. The prophet Isaiah says that Egypt will be like God's beloved Israel, delivered from plagues. And Scripture goes out of its way elsewhere to say to Israel, look, if you oppress your neighbor, I'll treat you like I did Egypt. The point is using your power to liberate people and not to oppress. Way back in Genesis, the patriarch Jacob himself goes to Egypt and blesses Pharaoh. That's the first time we hear about Pharaoh. It's a word of blessing. Israel has a long memory of practicing love of enemies, way before Jesus ever made that his thing. And God's threats are like a mother threatening her child, don't put your hand on the stove, honey. It's dangerous. And then she'll knock her little hand away if she needs to. God threatens only because God loves. And God longs for shalom for every creature. How's it all end? Well, who's another firstborn who dies? Another whose blood makes for life. This is one of the darkest stories in Scripture, but it leads to the darkest story anywhere the death of God's own firstborn. Egypt grieves after the plagues, and she asks, is there any grief like my grief? And God says, yes, mine. And my grief is life for everybody, Egypt included. More wisdom in this story. What is it but a story of ecological disaster? And in our day of ecological sensitivity, this is really helpful. The most commonly repeated word in the plague stories is the land, the land, the land. 
The land will be infested with, not, with gnats and flies and plagues and so on. The land. You and I live in such a way that we think food comes from the grocery store, right? We act like we don't need farms. But if farms were disrupted, we would go hungry very, very fast. And with climate change, we're all worried about ecological catastrophe. This story makes clear something our culture has debated about for some years. Human action does affect the ecology. It does. Now, God's action affects it too. And that's harder to get at with legislation, I grant. Exodus says this, oppress people and the land will fight against you. Free people and the land will be bountiful. The sea will even split for you. After about the fourth plague, these calamities don't affect Israel at all. She's in Goshen, part of Egypt, and every plague falls on the Egyptians, but not the Israelites. Not a locust, not a boil, none of the livestock are sick. Hey, is it dark over there? Nope, we can see just fine over here in Goshen, just not you guys in Egypt. In our ecologically sensitive age, we also know our actions have ramifications on the climate. We depend on the land too, hard as that is to tell in city life. Think about how many days you can go without your feet touching actual soil. I bet it's hundreds of days. But you and I depend on that soil for life, just like our forebears did. Indigenous Christians will speak of the land as our mother. She gives us life. We should be good to her. Now, there's a joke about creation you'll hear me tell so many times you'll be sick of it, but this is the first time you've heard me tell it, so act like it's funny, okay? A researcher goes to tell God, hey, we don't need you anymore. We can make our own people. And God says, that's very interesting. Show me. So the researcher scoops up a handful of dirt to blow life into it the way God does in Genesis, and God says, nah, you get your own dirt. Every bit of dirt belongs to God. You and I can't make our own universe. All we can do is move things around in God's universe. The dirt is significant. In the plague of gnats, Exodus says, every bit of dust in Egypt became a gnat. <laughs> Imagine no more dirt, just gnats. One of you said in the Tuesday Bible study that one gnat can drive you mad. Imagine the land is nothing but gnats. But the dust is significant because you and I come from dust. And one day, very, very soon, we'll be dust again. God makes Adam from the Adamah, the dirt. You and I are dirt creatures, just like our forebears. I'm going to tell you, it's weird. When Christians come forward on Ash Wednesday and pastors make the sign of the cross in your forehead and we say, you are dirt, and to dirt you'll return, People smile at you when you say that. I just told you you're dying and you're smiling at me. It's weird. But being told you're mortal is good news. The sermon started out about the plagues, but it's become about creation. The plagues are decreation, uncreation. God undoes the underpinnings of creation and it collapses on the Egyptians' heads. Best choose size with God who takes the side of the oppressed. As you sow, so also shall you reap. But maybe it's better to end with a gentle creation story. 
In BC, I was very involved with a Christian environmental organization called Arasha, means the rock in Portuguese. They got on the world map when a college intern pulled up a bucket of water and found a fish that had been thought extinct in that watershed for decades. And suddenly, conservationists in Canada and all over the world were interested in this little bitty Christian organization. That college intern had heard God say in prayer that morning, you're going to see something wonderful today. And so it was. They also got on the map because Margaret Atwood, the grand dame of Canadian letters, loves Arasha. She says, I write novels about end-of-the-world apocalyptic sects. Here's an end-of-the-world apocalyptic sect that we should all be imitating. (laughs) She thinks all churches should be counting salmon and taking school kids out to the land and growing crops and selling produce at CSAs. Now, one thing Arasha does is they monitor the salmon spawn in this little river that they look after. And when I went, they had like NASA-style camera equipment pointing at a creek you could step across. And so I asked, how many fish so far? And they said, four. (laughs) Four? That's barely even a meal. And they said, oh, don't worry. Thousands are coming. Tens of thousands. Hundreds of thousands. You won't even be able to see the water. It'll be a plague of salmon. Nothing but salmon swimming the wrong way at the end of their life to make new life. That's creation not run amok. Creation doing as God intends. When God delights creation into being in the first place. So y'all, the plagues are about a God who loves creation. Especially the human part of creation. God won't tolerate tyranny from one of us against others that ends in death. God also loves a good story, loves a good joke, loves a good plate of salmon, and loves bringing every tyranny to an end. Amen.